on behalf of Phoenix Seminary, greetings, and uh, it's always great to, to be home. We've got a batch of new students starting uh, this fall. I'm looking out there, seeing that some of you need to be part of that batch. You know, some of you say, well, I, I'm too old to take a class. Our oldest student's in his 70s. It's true. <laughs> you say, well, I, I'm afraid to take classes. Why don't you just come and audit a class or just come on down and give me a visit there on uh, 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 42nd Street and Thomas and big four-story building says Phoenix Seminary on it. Come on down and uh, let us show you around. Let me try to press you into taking a class. Love for you to do that. You know, my life verse has always been 2 Timothy 2.15. Now study to show thyself approved unto God a workman who need not be ashamed of yourself rightly dividing the word of truth. I guess I'm so committed to the, this last part of my life at the seminary is because I'm so concerned about what I call biblical illiteracy in the Christian community. I mean, I, I, it's amazing how many Christians know five steps, eight steps, six steps to every therapeutic you know, uh, benefit for their own self-need, but to know the scriptures. To let God speak for himself, to really touch the soul and the spirit of a human being in a way that we cannot come up with through felt needs, it's just there's nothing even more, more, more blessed. And I just tell you, I just yearn for you to come and go deeper in the study of the word of God. And any opportunity I have to come at you, I'm coming at you with, with it. Uh, here I want to talk about elephants. Specifically one particular elephant that consistently is in the room. I'm talking about a question that people ask, but they only ask to themselves because they're fearful to ask of anyone else. It's a question that really is addressed by the book of Job. The book of Job is most likely the most ancient of all the books in the Bible, but it is a key to understanding something that bothers most any thinking person. Little 11-year-old Kelsey Fandel, diagnosed with heart disease, her her, her heart muscle can no longer pump blood, but she'll live to see her 11th birthday because she received a heart from little 10-year-old Haley Ford, who died after being 20 days in a coma after a car collision that also took the life of her mother. Why do things like that happen? I was flying in from uh, the uh, East Coast and while we're waiting in the airport, I was, uh, they have CNN News. And uh, the whole thing was about this uh, court trial for uh, uh, the mother of, uh, of, of little Kaylee, Kaylee Marie, and shock at the jury's decision. And I thought, interesting, everybody's debating and commentating about, about you know, the decision on is the mother guilty, not guilty, responsible, not responsible. But the fact is, little Kaylee Marie is dead, a child. Why, why do these things happen? Why, why, why does God permit these kinds of things to happen to innocent people? Innocent people. Your life has been torqued. Every one of you with loss, disappointment, as mine has. I mean, if we're going to be honest, we're going to be thinking. We've got to ask the question, how could God, how could a loving God let this happen. How many times have you asked that question? How, or you've been asked that question, how can a loving God permit this to happen? You see, we can trust what we know, but you can't trust what you don't know. 
So you've got to begin with, well, what do you know? The professor asked his class, did God make everything? There is. A trick question. A lot of professors love doing this, love playing with students. They think the uh, PhD at the end of their name is a G-O-D, and they love to manipulate the minds of our students. So he's asked the old question, well, did God make everything there is? And of course the class, a bunch of num-nums, basically, well, they all agree. Well, then he says, if God made everything, then God made evil. One student raised his hand and asked, sir, is there such a thing as cold? Oh, when the professor agreed that there was, the student continued, actually, sir, cold does not exist. What we consider to be cold is really the absence of heat. Absolute zero is when there is absolutely no heat. But cold does not really exist. It's the same with darkness, which is really the absence of, of light. And so the student continued, and I quote, Sir, is there such a thing as evil, or is it a term to describe the absence of good, the absence of God? God did not create evil. Evil then is a state where God is not present, like cold without heat and, and, and darkness without light. Well, philosophically, that answers the question about does God create evil? But it doesn't do anything to the pain and the suffering that still remains with us. If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does he let there be the absence of good if he could do something about it? Why does he permit there to be the very presence of, of evil that produces so much suffering and pain? There's actually a theological term for this debate. It's called theodicy. I know it sounds like a ride at Disneyland. Are you going to go on the theodicy? Yeah, it's a two tickets. No, the word theodicy simply is a fancy word meaning the defense of God. The defense of not only God's character but God's existence. Atheists, people will use this to dismiss God's existence. In the words of one atheist, quote, We know that much evil and suffering exist in all the world. Christians speak of a personal God who is good, merciful, all-powerful. This is impossible. God could be good, but impotent, and thus unable to stop human pain. Or God could also be sovereign and all-powerful, but then he would be cruel and unsympathetic to the human condition. God cannot, however, be both good and sovereign. Therefore, personally, I don't believe God even exists. End of quote. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book years ago, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kind of has become a classic. He wrote it because his young son had that disease where, where you age prematurely and die. And out of a broken heart, Rabbi Kushner wrote this book, but he takes the view that God is a very sympathetic, loving, caring God, but he's not all-powerful and there's just some things he can't control. In his own words, quote, Once the bullet begins hurling down the barrel of the gun, not even God himself can stop it. So God's good, but he's not all-powerful. Well, what good is it having a good God if he can't do anything about the goodness? I, I tread upon this subject softly because I know there are deep personal wounds attached to this question, and I want to be loving and respectful. But what does the Bible say about this? I, I want to know, 
But not for your sake. I want to know for my own sake. The own pain and the torqueness in my life that I view consistently. Like I said, there are some things we know. And there are some things we don't know. And we don't know, we need to stop giving opinions and ideas and, and simply uh, platitudes or things we don't know. But at the same time, we can trust what we do know. So what do we know? Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter 1. I want to introduce to you this morning the book of Job because at Phoenix Seminary we provide a, a class to the community, a free class to the community of theological education. Usually books that no one else really studies much. So we've done Revelation and Hebrews. We've done Sermon on the Mount. This year we're going to do the book of Job. And so if you would like to dig deeper after this morning and go verse by verse through all 42 chapters, uh, then the presence class is taught right here, Monday night, 6.30, about 500 folks show up, and uh, it, it's free. Although I twist arms and try to get an offering for the seminary, but it's free. And we'll do it for seven weeks, take a holiday break, and then we'll do the final seven weeks. Book of Job will be the presence class starting first Monday night of October. I invite for you to come. But for this morning, I want to just introduce the book because it does introduce to us what we do know. So what do we know? about pain and suffering. First thing we know is that we live in a fallen world. Look at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The writer begins in verse 6, he says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, the angelic beings, they came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? As if he didn't know. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Oh great, he had to land on this planet. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now I'll stop for a moment. My first question is, How did the power of darkness come to be roaming about on the earth? The one who, who is the author of deception, the author of pain and suffering. Because in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, it says God created the heavens and the earth, and he said it was good. Six times he says it was good. The seventh time he says it's very good. And yet in this good creation of God, he created this concept, apparently a concept of, of, of love. But for love to be love, it had to be authored by choice, free choice. And so God gave the human race the capacity for choice. So in Genesis 3, Satan comes and does what Satan does. He deceives, and as he deceives the human beings, they choose. They exercise their gift of free choice. They choose to turn their backs on God. Now before you go, well, that was their fault. No, look at the world around you. Most people still choose to turn their backs on God. That's not even a debate. But when the original couple turned their backs on God with their free choice... They began two realities. The first, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, says that it was through one man sin entered the world and through sin came death. Because they turned their backs on God, they created humans who were hurtful. Humans became hurtful. Second thing, when they turned their backs on God, Romans 8, verse 20 to 22, says the world fell from its good, that is, intended pleasure that God created it to be, it fell and it seeks redemption to be once again what God wants the earth to be. So in the fallen world we have earthquakes 
and we have tornadoes and we have tsunamis and we have all the floods and the storms and the hurricanes. In other words, humans became hurtful and the world became hurtful because we turned our back on its creator. This we know. And because of this, there's a second thing we know. We know that bad things happen in a fallen world. Pick it up again in verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Do you really believe that Job fears you, God, worships and loves you, trusts you, God, for no reason? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast uh, blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased his land. But you put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse thee to the face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. You know, sometimes we suffer bad things because of our own foolishness. You know, they put the little warning on the pack of the side of cigarettes. I read that apparently one man read that warning that smoking was bad for his health, so he decided to give up reading. <laughs> There's some things we do, we do it, and we do it to ourselves, and we need to own up to it. Other times, or sometimes we suffer bad things because of the foolishness of others. Cars are a wonderful thing, but they become weapons in the hands of a drunk. In the 60s, they told us that use certain insecticides that will give us more food and more plentiful and help the economy. Now we're talking about cancers and diseases due to these particular invasions into the nature. But sometimes we suffer bad things and it makes absolutely no sense at all. Especially when it comes to the innocence of children. That really bothers me, and apparently it bothered Jesus as well. In John chapter 9, remember the first three verses? Jesus is going to be stoned in the temple at the end of chapter 8. Jesus is actually leaving the temple, and there's this young kid basically uh, begging. And he's become, the kid's a theological debate for the other disciples. Well, who sinned? Did he sin? No, his parents sinned. The rabbis even taught that you could sin in your mother's womb. So that if you came out and you were in trouble, it's probably something you did in your mother's belly. It was that absurd. And Jesus basically says, you numbskulls, which is Hebrew for unwise ones. <laughs> basically, Jesus says, this is not a theological debate going on here. This is a kid who's been blind since birth. It's not his mother's fault. It's not his fault. But it is to the glory of God. God can pull something out of this and will. See, whether our suffering is due to us or due to others to us or due to who knows what, it's still like Gordon Lightfoot used to sing, where does the love of God go when the cold wind blows? But there's a third thing we know. We know the wisdom of God. Look at verse 20, 22. Now, this is after... Basically, Satan does a deal on Job. Takes away his health, 
gives him boils, takes away his wealth, his possessions, his land, his children. And, but at least he leaves him his wife, who's a very wonderful support, great counsel. Curse God and die! Curse God and die! That was a real blessing. He was a part of the curse. Anyway, the point being is that poor Job's having a tough season. And again, the challenge in heaven was, you go ahead. Does Job fear you for nothing? Just take away the good life. You're just cosmic sugar daddy to the guy. You take away the sugar daddy and he'll curse you to the face. Apparently he doesn't because he knows the wisdom of God. Notice verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head. He's hurting. And he fell to the ground. But instead of cursing God, he what? It says he worshipped. And he said, naked I came, into, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And this sounds a little bit like a song we just sang. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he ever blame God. He did not flinch in his faith. God's love for us is the very reason why God never abandons us in our pain and our suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. See, when things are going fine, we usually don't even hear God. It's like God's whispering because we're enjoying the pleasures. But shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the ear of a deaf world. I hate to admit it, but when I'm suffering, I'm a better man. I'm more sensitive, wiser, more compassionate, more caring. Face it, we're all better people when we're suffering. Better or bitter, either way. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, there's a remarkable verse. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, God's looking at the suffering of His people. And they're basically bringing it upon themselves. But He looks at their suffering and He says this. This is God speaking of Himself. He says, my heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Oh, God is engaged when his people suffer. When his people suffer the results. Why do you think Jesus wept? There in John 10, when he sees all the weeping, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's going to be okay in 15 minutes. But he sees the pain and the suffering of the grief of Mary and Martha and everyone else. And the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus. Oh yeah, that's God weeping. What does Romans 8.28 really mean? As I said, I was in the airport waiting for the flight. And, and uh, we went to the bookstore and, and there it was. That little paperback. Uh, the shack is still out being sold. Still going on. And one said, I think, boy, I wish I would have written that. The only trouble is half the Christians have read it love it. The other half hate it. I don't know how many comments and articles I've read and I've been, people have come and called me at the seminary and say we need to assassinate this guy or something you know because horrible thing Bible's over here let me stand over here okay it's the shack let me stand over here Christians relax take a breath you know when you read a book written by a human being is a human being trying to navigate and share his views or her views on a particular subject. Can we Christians be secure enough to relax? He's not a theologian. He's an accountant. Now, it's okay to be an accountant. 
But let's not have the expectation that he's a thought-through theologian presenting some theological view. He's trying to navigate this issue of how can a good, loving God permit people to suffer? Can you draw from a book some wisdom, even if you disagree with 90% of it? Learn to do so. Learn to be students. What he does in this book, he takes the most horrible situation you can, you can view. A man is out at the lake with his family, his, his, his two girls and his son. And, and he's coloring on the par bench there with his daughter, at the youngest of the three. And all of a sudden he hears a scream. And over in the lake, uh, the son fell in and caught under a boat. And he was drowning. He looks at a little girl. He runs and he saves the life of, of, of his chi- children. Only to find that someone has kidnapped his little girl. Then proceeds to take her to a shack, the shack, abuses her and murders her. Can you think of anything more horrible? Now that's what the book is about. Yes, the Holy Spirit, little Asian weird thing, I don't know all about. Don't worry about that. The point is, he's trying to navigate, and it's an interesting conclusion he draws, which is basically this. No matter what mess we create for ourselves, or the intensity of the mess others create for us. In God's sovereign wisdom, he can pull good out of it. That's the miracle. That's the supernatural miracle. No matter what it is, produced by who knows what, God can pull good out of our messes. That's his sovereign wisdom. And that's what Romans 8, 28 is all about. God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according, not to their entitlement to a great life, but called according to his purpose. After Job has lost his family, his wealth, his health, his friends, he cries out to God, what's happening to me? God, and and he doesn't blame God, but he does. He does falter a little bit when he says, God, I don't understand what's happening here. I got these guys counseling me saying I've done something wrong, but I have not a clue what I've done wrong. If I could go to the court of heavens and plead my case, God, then you would understand what's going on, and I don't understand why you're letting this happen to me. And God answers his prayer in chapter 40. But it doesn't seem to be a very compassionate answer. Look at verse 1 of Job 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. You say, God, lighten up on the poor guy. He's had a tough season. Verse 6 to 9. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you to, you to instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Who do you think you are? The point that he's making is that Job gets it. I want to defend Job, say, God, lighten. But Job gets it. Look at the last chapter, chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things. God, you're all powerful. And that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. And that you're all good. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Verse 5. I have heard of thee in the hearing of thy ear. 
But now my eyes have seen thee, therefore I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. Interesting, here's what's going on. Picture a triangle. On this side of the triangle, you've got God is good. On this side of the triangle, you've got God is powerful. He's all good. He's all powerful. But at the bottom of the triangle, we've got the reality of pain and suffering. Now, because of this reality of pain and suffering, either God cannot be all good, because if He's all powerful, He could do something about it. So maybe He's all powerful, but He's not all good. Or, maybe He's all good, sympathetic and caring, but He's not all powerful, because my pain and suffering remains, and God's not doing anything about it. If we stay with this triangle, that's the theodicy debate, then we're lost. Because we don't understand. And how can you trust that which you do not understand? But you take what he's saying here is you take this triangle and you make it a diamond. Because at the very, very top of it, you've got the goodness of God. You've got the power of God. Yes, you've got the presence of suffering. But at the top of the diamond, you have the wisdom, the sovereign wisdom of God. And this is what we know. You've heard me say it many, many times here at Scottsdale Bible Church. The book of Job is really all about, here is the infinite mind of God. Infinite wisdom. Trying to be understood by finite brains. Now maybe you believe that you've got an infinite mind, but you don't. We all, by definition, have finite brains. And all this is all about is taking infinite wisdom, infinite understanding, trying to be understood by a finite brain. There will be spillage. And the spillage is called mystery. It's as logical as this. I, I, I don't have an iPad yet, you know, because I, they're weird. But I, I, I'm, one day I'll get one, I'm sure. But I got a, little, got a little phone here, and I can push little things, little apps, and things happen. I don't have a clue. I don't know how that works. And because I don't understand how this works, it cannot be understood. It's magic. <laughs> That's absolutely arrogant. Because there are people who understand exactly how this works. Now, they're a little quirky, but they do understand how this thing works. It would be arrogant on my part to say, if I can understand it, it cannot be understood. When I know there's human beings who understand. So who am I to say, when horrible things happen, if I cannot explain it, if I cannot understand it, if I cannot comprehend it, therefore it could not be understood, there is no purpose, there is no reason, there is no hope, when we're talking about the presence of an infinite, sovereign mind. That's what the book of Job is all about. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah a little more gently. He says this in Isaiah chapter 55. Listen to verses 8 and 9. God says, and I, say, I think he says it softly, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It comes down to this. In those times, we don't know why God would let such things happen to innocence. 
We can't trust what we don't know, but we can trust what we do know. And what do we know? We go to the one we know, a God who is infinite in wisdom, sovereign in grace, that he loves us, he grieves with us, there's no wasted tears. He will always bring out of our mess purpose. Thus there's no despair. Our prayer is, God, I don't understand, but I love you, and I trust you, and I, God, don't let me flinch in my faith here. Don't let me let you down when Satan asks you, does Daryl fear God for nothing? If there's ever a test I want to pass, it's that one. It's that one. I'll tell you, loss came suddenly for Jerry Sitzer. Tragic automobile accident. He lost three generations of his family, taken away from him like that. His mother, his wife, his young daughter. I mean, that was his past taken. That was his present taken. That was his future taken. Jerry's response was to plumb the depths of his sorrow in order to understand what grace God could give that would eventually transform him. His journey through this dark days after the accident, he records in a book that he had written called Grace Disguised. And I have no right to say this, but I quote him. In other words, though I experienced death, I also experienced life in ways I never thought possible before. Not after the darkness, but in it. And found within that pain the grace to survive and eventually even grow. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life. Like soil receives decaying matter. Until it became part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it, and enlarged it. Those of you who know Holly and I, you know Holly's a lot smarter than I am. I'm the mouth, she's the brain. And remarkable writer, she has a blog. You gotta go to it, she has almost a hundred of these blogs. And this one she wrote some time ago, I quote Holly, the soul is elastic, like a balloon. Loss can be enlarged, can enlarge its capacity for anger, depression, despair, and anguish. All natural, legitimate emotions whenever we experience loss. But once enlarged, the soul is also capable of experiencing greater joy, strength, peace, and love. hate to admit it, but we're better people when we suffer because our souls are enlarged and our capacity to comprehend and experience life is greater. But it's always with the nearness of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Like I've said, if you feel like God's a million miles away, guess who moved? He hasn't. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he delivers those who are crushed in the spirit. If you ever want to experience the closeness and intimacy of God, it's when you're going through these horrific experiences. His presence is there. 
And his sovereign wisdom is there. And he will pull out of whatever mess we are in. He'll pull out something that is supernatural and thus enlarge our souls and our hearts because there is no wasted tears and there is no hopelessness or no purposelessness. I know when I have atheists debate and get angry and at this simplistic explanation, my question eventually is, and so what is your alternative? That there is no purpose? There is no design? It is an accident? It is despair? It is just tragedy, raw and honest, and that's all there is? And what encouragement and hope comes out from that? But hopelessness went out with the resurrection. There was a funeral in Grand Canyon a few years back. Young man was asked to do it. He had never done a funeral like this because another young man was killed in a plane crash that crashed into the Grand Canyon. Young man showed that morning a small funeral, about 20, 30 people, and, and the best he could, he shared encouragement of the love of God, the presence of God, encouragement of God. There was one man there that just wasn't buying it. Unbeliever, bitter, angry. Funny, verbally, just broke right out. You see, this man was the father of the boy who was killed. And he said, how dare you? How dare you speak of God's understanding and God's love? Where was God when my son was going down in a flaming plane? Everyone was pretty embarrassed. But you know, sometimes the Lord just gives a young pastor what he needs to say at the moment. The young man simply responded quietly. I guess he was the same place he was when his son died. God understands. And that's what this is all about. Us remembering that the Father so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is the Father who gave the provision of His Son. It is the Father who saw the Son scourged, beaten, scorned. It was the Father who saw His Son executed on a cross. It was the Father's love, the Father's presence. Because the Father wanted to bring you from being a mere creature, relating to some Creator, to become His daughter, to become His Son. So that when people are suffering, those are his children suffering. And the Father wanted you to be coming home to be his child. And so he provided the forgiveness, the forgiveness of our turning our backs on him, the forgiveness of our sinfulness, of the evil in our own lives. He provided it with the death of his own son. And he observed it. Even to hear his own son cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? Father never forsaken. Father was there. Providing our forgiveness. So your Heavenly Father can always be there for you. Pulling good out of the pain for you. So as we partake, please hold the bread and the cups that we'll all partake together. But let's reflect on those flinches of faith 
those times we've sinned against God because we raised an angry fist instead of asking for God's wisdom. Come, serve us. Let's pray, freely reflect.
In the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body being broken for you. What are you going through? What's your pain? Broken relationship? Feel abandoned by somebody you trusted? Did somebody with full intent just create pain and suffering for you? Was it someone's insensitivity? Some natural phenomenon? The economy? You feel broken? You feel all alone? Like no one knows? Jesus said, my body was broken for you. I took what evil does and I let it be done to me. I know, I understand. Take, eat, and remember. And then he took the cup of the fruit of the vine. He says, this is the promise of God. God no longer wants to be your mere creator, some distant relationship with a creature. He wants to be your heavenly father, ever present with his sons and his daughters. Always engaged in their lives in every aspect with every breath. And so he's provided forgiveness to all of us turning our back on him. Invite us back into his family. But because of the sinfulness of evil, his son died on the cross. And that was God's provision for absolute forgiveness. If we'll now turn back to God and ask him for that forgiveness. And those who have, as you taste the sweetness of this crushed fruit, remember the sweetness of God's presence always with you in his wisdom in his sovereignty in his love remember Heavenly Father help us not to be distracted from this one thing that Lord your presence is always with us now give us wisdom on how to practice the very presence of God in our lives. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ to your honor. God's children said, amen. Be encouraged. Walk worthy. God bless you. In